Uh, this week we continue our series in the book of Acts, and we get kind of to a, uh, an unusual story as Philip makes his way following the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. He makes his way to Samaria and runs into an interesting individual who at first believes, but uh, to be determined what happens with the rest of his life. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, September 14, 2014. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are in the book of Acts. I don't even probably have to say that anymore. We've been here all summer, and we're in the book of Acts. We will finish up. So we've got, uh, we're going to talk about Simon the Sorcerer, which you probably never heard a sermon on Simon the Sorcerer, I'm guessing. Um, so we're going to talk about Simon the Sorcerer. And then next week, uh, the, the mission work goes to Philip and the Ethiopian. And then finally, we're going to finish up with uh, the conversion of St. Paul or uh, Saul. And we saw him just last week. He is the one... And, and I think that'll be, I think I'm enjoying looking forward to that, the, that idea of redemption because he's the one where they lay the coats at his feet and he's the one that it says, the first verse of chapter 8, Paul or Saul approved of the killing of Stephen. So just a little background if you, you haven't been with us. The church, the church did fantastic. Um, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. So this is fantastic. The, the church starts to grow. The church is very uh, loving. It's 120 people, and then it expands to like 5,000 people plus. And they start sharing their stuff. They start making sure people are fed. It gets so big, though, that there's, now it gets to the point of internal complaints. And someone says, hey, listen, um, our widows are being ignored while you take care of the other widows. So they say, okay, we've got to fix some things. So instead of being just kind of, we said, leaders who are just generalists, they become uh, a team of specialists, and the apostles do their thing. They get seven guys that start doing the thing, looking after these widows. That apparently is not all they do, because Stephen is evangelizing, isn't he? And that's what gets him into trouble, as he gets the authorities bring him in. And on, on a, a very real level, you have to think through this. Just imagine someone that you know who is falsely accused of something. You could imagine that. But now they're falsely accused by people who are supposed to be the religious, like upright. You'd think religious people are honest. I mean, you'd kind of assume that. Um, so the religious people are the ones who are, are like wolves go around this guy. They bring false charges against him, and it gets so heated and, and so to the point. And you talk about the Middle East, like how can there be killings today? It's not that much different than it was 2,000 years ago. So the religious people are so infuriated with Stephen, they drag him out. And as he is witnessing, they take rocks and they, they throw him until he dies. Pretty scary. Um, the church itself at this point scatters. And it goes to a number of places, and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 8. So the verses before this just talks about that. So it says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I just think that's cool. So we should just end the sermon right here. Wherever you go, preach the word. Done. All right. Then, I don't know if there's an afternoon game. You would just assume I did that because of an afternoon football game. So I cannot do that just for my own reputation. So those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Specifically Philip. Now, keep in your mind, is Philip one of the seven that were assigned or is Philip one of the 12 apostles? He's one of the seven. So he had the same job as Stephen and now he's moving to Samaria. And the reason why it says goes down, and some of this you probably heard before, but Jerusalem was like the pinnacle. It was really high in the air. And whenever they went anywhere, they said they went down to other places. It would be like if you had a house on top of, um, I just lost the name of that mountain where you can drive, Mount Evans? 
Is Evans one you can drive up to? Okay, you can bike up there too if you're really motivated. You can hike up there as well. Um, so if you had a house on top of Mount Evans, no matter where you went ever, you would say, I'm going down, right? That's just how you would talk. I bet people in Leadville, they talk that way. That's my guess. So they'd say, hey, we're going to go down to the city, even if it's north. So I'm going down to Vail. That's going north. Same thing here. He's headed north, but they say he's going down. In Wisconsin, where there is absolutely no hills whatsoever, going down means you're going south, going up means you're going north. So I go up north, we don't, if that makes sense. Uh, so uh, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, we don't know which one, and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, that would help with the attention part, with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A couple things, that this is going to be a little bit more history than you want. Um, a couple things about Samaria, what makes it so unique. You probably have heard someone preach on Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John 4. Does this seem familiar? He goes to the well, and then the pastor usually says something like this. It was so uh, that the good, devout Jews would go around Samaria. Have you ever heard that? Because it was like an area you did not associate with the Samaritans. So you're thinking, like, why are the Samaritans, like, such a big deal? Why would you avoid it? It's not like bad crime area. Like, there's areas, uh, I don't know Denver well enough. There's areas in Seattle, like, not a real dangerous town, but when the sun went down, I just didn't go there. You know, I, I didn't, White Center, I think I'll just drive around White Center. I mean, that's, that's a good idea at that point. It's not because of crime. It's just because they felt we don't want to associate with these people. So as you can imagine, the Jewish people are very ethnically proud at this time because they are sons of Abraham. This is a big deal. So let me give you just a brief history, okay? Um, Abraham has a son named, does anyone know? Okay, Isaac. I should actually tell you the answers. It would be much, it would sound much better. I should hold these up and everyone would be like, man, that's the most educated church ever when they listen to it online. I'll just hold up Isaac. I'll put the names up there. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob is famous because it's my middle name. That's not why he's famous. Actually, he's got a great name, which means like grabber. Or, uh, um, and, and so some people think it's like deceiver because you're like heel grabber. Like if you're going against someone, it's not legit. They're, they're sneaky. But don't make any connection whatsoever at this point. Okay, so Jacob has 12 sons though. So in, you might know some of his sons like Reuben. You might know Judah. And you're going like, I don't know any of these sons. But you have heard, no matter what, of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. So you've heard of Joseph. And Joseph is the one, he goes to Egypt. The whole crew then comes to Egypt for 400 years. When they leave Egypt, there's still 12 tribes. So Jacob lays the blessing on him. They, they grow in Egypt, and they divide with Moses into 12 tribes. So if you read, like, the book of Exodus, it says, like, and then they formed into their 12 tribes. This may, so when Joshua now, so Moses could not go into the promised land. They're entering the promised land. Moses is now dead. I'm out Nemo. And they, uh, Nebo, Nemo. Nebo, there we go. And then Joshua leads the people in, and they start making stops where they're going to take their land. So like Reuben stayed on this side of the Jordan, for example. Um, Gad and Asher, they're farther north. And Judah was getting their spot. Is this all sounding a little bit familiar? Um, so all this is happening. They have these 12 tribes. Why is it that people hate the Samaritans? There is no Samaritan tribe. So you've heard of Judah. That's where the Messiah comes from. You've probably heard of Benjamin. That was, well, maybe you've heard of Benjamin. This is where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is in the region of Judah. 
This is where King David ruled. He was the ruler of Judah. This is south. There's, if you were like, okay, we'll just take a mental break here right now, okay? Okay, the ten tribes, though, in the north, they never had a single good king, ever. Like, not one. Like, you can just read through, and it just says how terrible they are. So the north is not exactly the most spiritually, you know, fit. Of, the south is where it's at. Like, when you talk about King Solomon, that's both kingdoms, but King David, uh, okay, that's both kingdoms. But uh, you, Josiah, he's a good king. He's in the south, always in the south. Well, the Assyrians, if you've ever heard of the Assyrians, they come down about 750 years, 720 years before Jesus is born. They come down and they say, um, I am going to destroy the northern tribes. They, they obliterate them. They go up north, and the Assyrians are nasty people. Like, but they have cool artwork. If you ever go to the British Museum, you can see like Sennacherib, and you can see they usually have like a guy with a tall head. They look a little Persian. They got like curly beards. Okay, if you've seen those, like, it's pretty cool, but not cool because they're really, they would stack heads up, like, on the borders when they would defeat these nations. That, that would be a deterrent, I think, to rebel. I mean, that's just me. And uh, so the Assyrians totally obliterate them, and those tribes never come back. But there are some people left over, so just remember those leftover people. In the south, they hang out. They're safe for a while. And then the Babylonians, and the only reason you remember this is like um, Nebuchadnezzar. Is that a name that sounds somewhat familiar from the Bible? So about 600 years before Jesus, they come in, they sweep the best and smartest people out, which includes like Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they move them over to like modern-day Iraq for only 70 years. And then the, the Persians take over, and you're like, is he still talking about this? Okay, the Persians take over, and they go back, and um, they go back in the south. So the southern tribe, like, rehabitates. You know, the temple is utterly destroyed. Solomon's temple obliterated, and they, they rebuild and things like this. This is all the south. Remember, now keep back. What are the northern tribes doing? They're gone. They're gone, except for a few people. So now just imagine, um, we got this half of the people. We take all of them except, like, two there's two people left over, and you're a brother and sister. You're like, we're not getting married. This is not, we're not doing this. So you're kind of out of options here. And God specifically says, though, you cannot marry outside tribes. You cannot marry foreigners. Well, all the people are gone, and they start to intermarry. And they start to um, incorporate, as you can imagine, some of the traditions just on an ethnic level. If you married someone who's, say, uh, German, or you married someone who's Spanish, you'd probably incorporate some of those festivals and things like that. Well, they do that on a religious level. So they're kind of Jewish, kind of other things. Now you are on the side, <laughs> this is going to be like one of those Stanford experiments where people, now you guys are going to be like sneering at this side. These are still good people. Now you're over here and you, and you're the pure Jewish people. Like you have worked hard to still be in the synagogue. You've worked hard to keep God's word. You've worked hard. You've had good kings. They've only had bad kings. So now they've intermarried, they're, they're mixing up their Jewish religion. It's like kind of a half-breed religion and a half-breed people. Now you are saying we've got to protect until the Messiah comes. That's why God wants to keep us separate. That's the point of all this. They intermixed. It gets to the point where they cannot stand the people from the region called Samaria. They see them as half-breed heretics. So if you want to see that, this is not an ideal situation. This is where Philip goes. So we got a couple things going on when we talk about Philip's ministry. At this time, is Christianity well accepted by everybody? 
the, like the sentence before this, Stephen is killed. So this is not ideal. So we have this tension going on here, and now they move into a new area, and he has to go to a place where most of the time they do not associate with him. So do you think that's reciprocated? Um, so I'll keep, use a football illustration. Nobody in the whole planet likes Raiders, except I don't even know if the Raiders like the Raiders, but no one likes the Raiders. So we assume, because every football team hates the Raiders, that the Raiders don't like any other football team. That's a good guess, right? So this is natural. If you're on this side of the, the coin, you're in Samaria, when the Jewish people come, what do you think? I don't want to have anything to do with these people. And here comes Philip to say, there's something I want to tell you. So Philip does something, and I think there's two takeaways we take from his ministry. One is it sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? That's why I put that summary in Luke. Okay, he preaches about the Messiah. They had their own word for Messiah. Tahid is what they would say in um, the Samaria. And they also heals people, and he also drives out demons. Second thing is Jesus predicted this would happen. So here's my amazing chart that I stole from the internet. That is, this is going to be profound. So get your Bibles open. You're going to want to write this down after, after the, my chart here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is Jesus just before he ascends into heaven. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In all Judea, remember, that's where like King David and the others are. That shouldn't have done. Oh, I went backwards. Sorry about that. in Samaria, into the ends of the earth. So Jesus was saying to the, imagine the disciples, I mean, it it doesn't mean that much now, but Jesus is saying like, now you are going to go to that place you don't want to go. Huh. What is it that drives this to happen? The Samaritans did not send a letter like, hey, I hope you guys could come hang out with us. Instead, persecution spreads the church, the apostles stay close, and they start to spread out. So Jesus predicted this would happen. So here's my chart. Oh, you can't even read it. Jerusalem, Judea, and then the next one. If anyone could read that, that's awesome. Samaria, excellent. And then the ends of the earth. Actually, you could have guessed that. Okay, this is going to be really profound. You cannot get more Jewish than Jerusalem. This, this is like as Jer- Jewish as it gets. Like, this is where the temple's at. This is where all the leaders are at. If you're a Jewish person, this is where you go to pilgrimage. This is as Jewish as it gets. Now, just, just keep this in mind that as we talk about our mission work. The conditions are not getting easier as you get farther away from Jerusalem. So now imagine you're saying, uh, you're in Jerusalem where they're waiting for the Messiah. It doesn't seem like it would be that hard to say, okay, you're waiting for the Messiah, right? I know who he is, right? This is cool, okay? Um, Judea, they're still waiting for the Messiah. Samaria, they've got kind of a mix between Jewishness and other religions. What happens when they get to the ends of the earth? There isn't even a mix of Jewishness in there. So now this is you and I, this is our background. We're talking about there's no Jewish background whatsoever. And this is why some of the work takes so much longer. In Jerusalem, you can have a believer in a day. They're waiting for the Messiah to say it's Jesus. 3,000 people convert. That's pretty awesome. You can, same thing can happen here. You get to Samaria, there's some explaining to do. You talk in like uh, John chapter 4 where Jesus talks to the woman at the well. He basically says, you kind of have this wrong. And then he points out, I am the Messiah that you're waiting for. Now you go to, like, uh, Paul going into, uh, like, the Gentile world. They have no concept whatsoever of a Messiah to come. I would say this is probably closer to the situation that we're running into. Philip is running into people that are hostile to Christianity. Would you say that's true in America? 
like just collectively, it feels like the, the surge is pushing towards a hostility towards Christianity. I would say that, and then as you talk to people, there isn't this assumption that says, okay, the Bible's true and right, and Jesus is the answer. You know, maybe I'm just not being active. I find that it's difficult because they say, hey, you got a lot of great ideas, and I think some of those are things that are pretty good, but let me tell you what I'd like to tell you about what I think about God and spirituality and what it means to have um, what's worthwhile. Here's my illustration, if you can see that. It should look blurry because that's like sleety rain. Okay, I teach, uh, seven-year-old teach, I just took over, the head coach is out of town, he's an insurance adjuster, so he's out of town for a couple weeks. I'm now head coach of seven-year-old peewee football. It's like herding cats. So I've got these 16, uh, seven, seven-year-old boys. So I'm trying to teach them football. We go through Monday, we go through Wednesday. Who was outside on Thursday with seven-year-old boys? All right, so it's, it's like 50 degrees if you weren't outside. It's like it's been warm all week. It is 50 degrees in raining. Of course, it rains when you're out there. And I've got these little boys that are sitting like this. They, their cheeks already touch the pads like this. And then they put sweatshirts on and then put the helmets on over that. So you can't even see their face. They're squished. They're freezing. Their hands are cold. They're like, Coach, how many more plays? How many more plays? I would say, I mean, this is, you know, I'm 20 degrees warmer. It's perfect. 20 degrees colder, I get a lawsuit. So, you know, it's not ideal situation. So would you agree with me this is a not ideal situation to coach seven-year-old boys? But there's a bigger mission, right? The bigger mission is I want these boys to be able to do something on Saturday. They won. Okay, but so, so this is the bigger mission, okay? The same thing is true, I think, when we talk about our witnessing. We're kind of way past the time where we have ideal situation. When you talk about sharing your faith with people in your neighborhood, your family, the people that you care about, I mean, anybody, we're way past ideal situation. It's like sleet in 50 degrees. But you have to step back, I think, and say, okay, is this up to me or is this up to God? Breaking news. You're not going to see this ever. Holy Spirit discouraged. Like, it, can you imagine that? When we talk about our mission, we don't have to worry because this is the Holy Spirit's power and the Holy Spirit is greater than persecution. The Holy Spirit is greater than the challenges we face. The Holy Spirit is greater because his mission is greater. There is no headline that says Holy Spirit discouraged or another one that says like Holy Spirit intimidated by dark forces. Like you're you're not going to see that because he's God. And God says this is how I want things to go. You're going to go from Jerusalem and this is less and less ideal to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth and that's where we fit in. But now it gets weird, okay? Now for some time, a man named Simon, this is different than the Simon, uh, that was Peter in our reading, this is a different Simon, had practiced sorcery in the city. You're like, why don't you talk to the little kids about sorcery? Okay, uh, Simon practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called Uh, the great power of God. Now, just, can you imagine this happening in Jerusalem? Like the Sadducees are hanging, they killed Jesus, right? Can you imagine a guy coming and just doing like miracles and like connecting to dark forces and that's going to fly in Jerusalem? It's not going to fly. But in Samaria, that gives you an idea of what's going on. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with sorcery. So, side note number two. And you're like, this is actually side note number 12. But, okay, side note number two. We do live, according to Scripture, we live in a world where there is supernatural stuff that goes on. 
On a positive side, let's just start on the positive side. We worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who Jesus now has flesh, but he's a, God is a spirit. God is supernatural. God does things that you can't imagine. God does things, as we said, we get to witness some of these miracles as he opens heaven up and lets us talk with him. God says he sends not just one angel, but his angels to take care of you. That's the positive end. On the other end, where we live in a supernatural world where the devil is in charge and the demonic that work in, I don't know how Simon tapped into these things, but Simon somehow is doing miracles that amaze people. Not fake miracles, not like magic tricks with the hat and like the secret compartment. He's doing things that amaze people because he's connected to demonic forces. So the people are there. That's this situation. He goes, and I would say this is even less than ideal. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere. And he was astonished by the great signs and the miracles he saw. So now this is a big turn of events. You have not only a guy who's just like indifferent about God, this is a guy who was like on the devil's team and then says like, hey, I want to know about the Savior, and, and I want to know what forgiveness is, and I want to know. Is that pretty cool? For a while. Okay. Um, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted, now keep in mind, this is a long section, so the apostles, uh, the 12 apostles are still in Jerusalem, and Philip is the one who went to Samaria. When they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, I don't think this is like an investigation, like, are you kidding me? The Samaritans are believing, like, I, we don't believe this. But they seem to be saying, let's, let's go and see what's going on. So Peter and John go to Samaria. They arrive, they prayed for the new believers. They're there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And here's, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so think in your mind, how do you explain that? They didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they were baptized. I have no idea. I mean, if you, if you know, awesome, just send me a letter and I'll, we'll re-preach this next week. I have no idea what that means. It's, normally, when someone is baptized, they receive the, the Holy Spirit. And our only guess is this. Obviously, they received faith and they were forgiven in Christ. The only guess is this, that they didn't see in some manifest way, they didn't see in some tangible way that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are there. We'd think examples of early Christian church, they spoke in tongues. Maybe that's what they were looking for. I don't know, okay? I could either admit I don't know or I could have just skipped this section, so I just admit I know. Don't know. There we go. When we talk about it, though, what is the greatest gift that you can receive? The greatest gift that you receive through Christ is really Christ's presence, and I mean that through faith in him you receive Christ's presence, and this is something that goes ongoing, and we're going to go a little bit, and then I'll see where this connects. Um, God says, Adam, he walks with Adam and Eve, right? And then he separates, and then because of their sin, they're separated. God says, I'm going to send my son to come to you, so we go through this whole period until Jesus comes, and Jesus literally walks on the planet, and Jesus walks and lives and breathes and dies and rises again to say, I am here with you, which ultimately leads to Jesus saying, I now am leaving on that day, as he says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth, but now I'm going. But what's his promise? I'll be with you always until the end of the age. That's just a picture of 
ultimately getting to a place when we're ultimately with God. So when you start talking about heaven and hell with someone, most people say like, oh, the burning fire. The biggest deal is you're not in God's presence. That's the biggest deal. The biggest difference. And we said this before, the ultimate best it's going to get for an unbeliever is right here on earth. You still get some of God's blessings. You still see the sun and you still get cool things like that. Outside of that, in hell, there is none of God's blessings. And for a believer, this is about as bad as it gets. Because ultimately, we're going to be face-to-face, never, ever separated. The devil is completely out of it, and the torments of the devil are completely gone, and now all we do is live in God's presence. What does that mean for when we walk here? And we probably don't think about this much as Lutherans, but do you think like the Holy Spirit is present with us here? Is that something that comes up all the time in your head? Is that what you say to your kids? Like, hey, we're going to go worship and the Holy Spirit will be present. Probably not, but this is a true statement. God says Jesus is with us and the Holy Spirit is with us as well through faith in our hearts and through faith here. There is no temple we have to go to. There is no place we have to pilgrimage to. The Holy Spirit is living and dwelling with us right here. Why does this matter? Because this is the greatest gift that you can get, the joy of being with the Holy Spirit. Simon sees it a little bit differently. So when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is a translation, but Peter basically says, To hell with you and your money. So it's, that, that's very clear. I mean, that's about what he says. So he says, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that you may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness, captive to sin. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. A couple things about Simon and then we'll apply it to herself and, and then we're done for the day. Um, so is Simon a believer or not a believer? I don't know. He was baptized. He says he believed. He follows through, but his heart is changed. So if you want to know the, the collective wisdom of the early Christian church, Simon is called the father of heresies, like second century. That's what they call him. If you want to buy a church office, which a lot of you do, I mean, you're lining up to buy a privilege or a church office, that's called simony, named after this guy. So in the church world, he doesn't have a fantastic reputation. It's not like, no, there is no like St. Simon church that I know of. Anyone know this? So, in the, so I don't know what happened to him. The general collective wisdom is he believed for a fort, short time and then his greed and other things changed him. In fact, his words like pray for me so that nothing may, you said may happen to me, that's very similar to Pharaoh and we wouldn't call Pharaoh a believer. He says the same thing like pray that this doesn't happen to me. He doesn't say like I believe, I can, I'm sorry for what I've done. Ultimately, I don't know. But I think the question is this. Uh, what are your motives as you talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit? What are your motives as you talk about a believer? If I do like a survey, we should get one of those cool phone surveys or something. It could give, tally the results. And it would say, would you want the Holy Spirit in your life? It would be like 100% and then somebody who wasn't paying attention or hit the button wrong and something else. You know, but, but it would be like 100% of people want the Holy Spirit. They want faith in their life. They want God to be, we'd use words like present and, and, and an active part of my life. The motives that we see in Simon is greed. And the motives I think we have to ask ourselves as believers is this. Why do we want God to be a big part of our life? Do I want God to be part of my life so that I can be a great husband? 
Do I want God to be part of my life so I can be a great employee? Do I want God to be part of my life so I can be a great spouse or son or daughter or business owner? Or, and and I'll give you an example from preaching, do I want to be a great preacher who preaches Jesus or do I want a preacher that preaches a great Jesus? And I think the question that we ask about our own motives, is there something that we're trying to get from our faith in God or do we step back and say, God, why don't you use the faith that I have to show your own greatness? I'll let you think about that one at home. Good news, though. You probably recognize this. Hopefully not in, like, real life. But you've seen the uh, flight attendants do this. The takeaway, I think, is this as well. Um, a lot of us are fired up about telling everyone about Jesus, making sure our kids are in church, or making sure our kids know who Jesus is. That's really fantastic. But if you're not taking care of yourself, you're in a bad situation. And the thing that the Lord gives each of us, the thing the Lord gives each of us is the same thing he gave Simon. When his sins started to cloud his heart, he says, your heart is not right with God. What does Peter say to him? Confess. Confess these sins to Jesus. That's why we do this every Sunday confess these sins to Jesus, and then again hear Jesus' forgiveness because Jesus says, I want to be present with you. What we have here is just a picture of the presence that we ultimately have with Jesus. What we have here is just a, just a glimmer of hope when we're ultimately with Jesus forever. And what we have here is just a glimmer of the joy we ultimately receive. You read it, the people who receive the Holy Spirit, they have great joy. I pray that joy is with you. I pray our motives are right as we confess to Jesus, and I pray that uh, your life has changed to say, I want to be on this mission with our Savior. Amen.